0: International pop icon, youngest self made billionaire woman, and fashion mogul. (laughs) What's
1: her name? Rihanna! Rihanna!
0: Rihanna! From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making. I'm Brandon Pope. Making is about the pivotal moments from an icon's life that skyrocketed them to greatness. Today, it's making Rihanna. She was just 16 when she signed a deal with Jay-Z and 19 when her smash hit Umbrella took the world by storm.
1: And the Grammy goes to Rihanna featuring Jay-Z for Umbrella!
0: But her legacy does not stop there. Now she is changing the fashion industry as we know it.
1: Bad girl RiRi is now rich girl RiRi. 34 years old, already a mogul, recently gracing
2: Forbes' annual list. Making her the wealthiest female musician in the world and second to Oprah as richest entertainer.
0: What takes someone from island girl with a catchy single to a music and fashion supernova?
1: You be fearless every day and when you don't feel like it, just pretend, girl. (laughs) Really and truly, don't let them see you sweat.
0: What were the years that defined bad girl Robin Rihanna Fenty? Helping us answer that question is music journalist Bill Wordy, Vogue.com editor Choma Nadi, and the record producer who discovered Rihanna, Evan Rogers.
3: And I warned her, it's a roller coaster. You're going to get kicked in the gut. Are you sure? And I'll never forget, with no hesitation, it was like, it's all I've ever wanted. And I was like, that's the right answer. That's today on
0: Making. And- Making. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race, hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash
3: events.
1: And then a hero comes along with the strength to carry on.
0: This is the voice of Robin Rihanna Fenty, aged 15. Persuaded by her friends to sign up for her high school beauty pageant and talent show on her island home of Barbados.
1: I dreamed of it, though. I always dreamed of it, and I want to do it so bad. I always said by the time I'm 18, I want to be a singer. If not, forget it. (laughs) yeah because you know after you get 18 it's kind of harder and i had a backup plan psychology
0: luckily fame found her early on in high school she formed a trio with friends and performed destiny's child songs it wasn't long before american record producer evan rogers visited barbados with his wife and the trio auditioned for him she had the x-factor he recommended she go by her middle name, and she flew to the U.S. to record a demo.
1: Ooh.
0: Soon, she was in the room with the president and CEO of Def Jam Records, Jay-Z. She has this outrageous song called Pony Replay. Mm-hmm. And then he played that song for me, and I was I was scared. I was like, um, that song is too big for her. And when she walked into our office, I was like... You know, she just had, it was just something about her.
1: I've never met a celebrity. And to have to audition for one and meet him at the same time, like Jay-Z, someone like him, I was so—I was hysterical.
0: We signed it at night. We didn't let it leave the office. Really? The three in the morning was when that contract got signed.
1: It was the longest 12 hours of my life. Like, I was just waiting downstairs and I was like, I had the concept on here. I want saying sign. I it to I was so hyped. I mean, I, just, I was just looking at these, the roof like, oh, gosh, is this happening? How we
0: do. So Evan Rogers, I want to start with you. You were an executive at SRP Records in the early 2000s. Put us in the room with you. Tell us the story of first seeing Rihanna perform in Barbados. She was just 15 years old, right? So why were you there and how did you discover
3: her? So, okay, well, I was there because my wife is from Barbados, so we would go to Barbados all the time. That's our our main hang. Um, being a record producer, songwriter, people knew on the island the word gets around, so it wasn't unusual for people to ask for auditions or, you know, so-and-so knows someone who can sing. So this was just another uh, one of those 315 15-year-old girls, could they come by the villa? And, of course, uh, you never know. So the three of them came for their audition. Rihanna was late, went home, I believe, to change uh, to get her look just how she wanted it. And they all sang for me. Rihanna sang Dangerously in Love. And I just heard something really unique and special in her vocals, even though they were raw. And she had a presence when she walked into the room. Um, and it was just one of those moments where I, I think I have something really special here. So I had to organize a follow-up meeting with just her and her mother um, the next day. And that's when we had the talk about, do you want to come up and take a shot at this? And I warned her, it's going to be a lot of, it's a roller coaster. You're going to get kicked in the gut. It's like, the music business is tough. Are you sure And I'll never forget, with no hesitation, it was like, it's all I've ever wanted. And I was like, that's the right answer. (laughs) All right, so after that, you
0: decided this is talent. I've got to nurture, support, and you brought her all the way to the US. Uh, Take us from that moment with what happened all the way to Ponda Replay.
3: It was right to almost exactly a year from the time that I first met her that Veda Nobles played us this beat and this track upon the replay, a girl named Majesti had written the lyrics and we just knew this is this is that door opener, this is that one. I played it for her over the phone and she was like, it sounds like a nursery rhyme, but I trust you guys. And then she came up and when she put her voice on it, it was magic.
0: That's the catchiest nursery rhyme I've ever heard. <laughs> There's no yeah. doubt about that
3: one. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the biggest hits are like nursery rhymes.
0: So Ponda replay happens. She hears it. Jay-Z gets a hold of it. L.A. Reid. What was their response to this?
3: We'd sent music and a few photographs to labels. And uh, Jay Brown had called us from Def Jam. And he was like, we got to meet with her. The first label meeting was rough. Didn't go well. It was like, whoa, this is going to be a little harder than we thought. Second meeting was Def Jam. You know, L.A. Reid walked in. And you could just feel the excitement from everybody. Tata, Jay Brown, Jay-Z, Tracy Waples, the whole team there. Carl Sturck and my partner played acoustic guitar and she sang For the Love of You.
1: Day away now.
3: And then she did Palm the Replay and she danced. She had choreography. That <laughs> it was like, oh my God, it was so, so crazy. But you just... They wouldn't let us leave. They were like, what do we got to do to cancel the rest of your meetings? And like she said, we were there until three in the morning.
0: Now, what you're hearing is never before heard footage of Rihanna rehearsing with Evan. Bill Wordy, I want to bring you in here. Today, you're the director of the Bandier Music Business Program at Syracuse University. But back then, you were the editorial director of Billboard during Ree's S.O.S. Day. So what did you think of this young dancehall artist at that time? Yeah, I mean, it was really hard to
2: anticipate that this was going to turn into one of those, you know, short list of like five or six biggest artists in the world. Um, Ponder Replay was you know, a cute song by an adorable newcomer to the, to the charts. Um, But I I don't know that if I'm being honest, I I would have said in that moment, oh man, this is, you know, this is going to
0: be a one name icon in a matter of time. All right. So if that wasn't the moment, then what was the moment where you said, okay, this, this artist, Rihanna, she's got something here. She could be an icon. Well,
2: certainly uh, umbrella, was the first time that the conversation shifted from this is a singer who has great singles to this is an artist who may be bigger than her songs. This is an artist with an identity.
0: That voice doesn't exactly sound like Rihanna now, does it? The man on the vocals is Terrius Youngdell Nash, also known as The Dream. He wrote Umbrella with Tricky Stewart, and this is the demo.
3: Trick stores starts to play this chord, and I kind of walk in at that, def- at that same moment, and I hear it, like, oh, okay, cool.
1: I turn the mic on. I maybe had to go back and change four words, but I sung it
0: from the top to the end. Exactly as is how you hit a song today. They brought the song to Britney Spears. She said no. Then Mary J. Blige. She said no. Then it found its way to 19 year old Rihanna and she killed it. The song blew up It topped the charts across the world. It stayed at number one in the UK for 10 weeks, coinciding with severe flooding. They called it the Rihanna Curse. She's here to make it rain right now. Fellas, I need you to grab your umbrellas and welcome Rihanna to the show.
4: And there you are, 19 years of age and breaking through at that level already. Fantastic success.
1: And the Grammy goes to Rihanna featuring Jay Z. For-
0: This song won her her first ever Grammy, and the hit is now listed as number 332 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Man, Umbrella, that takes me back right there. Now, Bill, what was it about Umbrella that really kind of pierced this cultural fabric and made it pop the way it did?
2: I I think there's a couple things about Umbrella that make it succeed the way it, it does. Like, first and foremost, and you know, I don't want to bury the lead here. It's just a phenomenal production. Like, it's a phenomenal song. Everything from, like, her vocals, the way she sort of, like, sing raps some of the lyrics, particularly, like, the, you know, I'm sticking out till the end parts. These things just really stick in your head. You know, when you look at the best and, and most iconic pop songs, more often than not, they tend to deal with fairly universal themes Because really, at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're providing a soundtrack for people driving in their cars, at least in America. You know, ride or die is is a powerful theme. It's it's very sort of simultaneously um, like powerful and comforting. And it's one of these things where it's it's kind of a universal truth that everyone is going to respond to. So you also have this moment where you have Jay-Z not just signing her, but now literally co-signing her on the video which is, I mean, you know, that's Jay really extending himself. That's Jay, like, you know, with the with the biggest cosine of all. Uh, and you also have this repositioning, right? The, the whole era is this good girl gone bad concept. And here's Jay-Z, you know, one of the ultimate bad boys in a certain context, on this uh, video for this artist who we previously thought of as kind of like, you know, a cute pop star. <laughs> and here's Jay setting it up as, you know, good girl gone bad. Literally what he says right at the beginning of the video. And, you know, and obviously the last part of this is the video, which is just incredible,
0: right? I mean, the video itself has become iconic. Yeah, a little bit of a perfect storm there. Evan, take us behind kind of the the business story behind Umbrella. What was going on behind the scenes that led to this huge pop culture moment?
3: So the album, you know, being good girl gone bad, it was definitely a statement already that we knew this was sort of the growing up, the next, you know, her becoming a young woman. Um, And when that song came in, I think we felt she'd found her identity. A lot of the previous singles have been pitched in higher keys, which I think being a young teen artist, songs get thrown. You know, and they were hits, S.O.S., Unfaithful, great songs. But I think we always felt from day one that she had a, a richer, lower part of her tone that really allowed her to shine. And Umbrella... Everything came together. It was the comfort zone where she could show that swag in her voice. Uh, Everything began to change quickly when that song hit.
0: (laughs) Well, especially when you got Jay-Z, who was in his retirement phase, in a sense, endorsing the track, right? That adds a whole new level. uh, Yeah,
3: I I remember the day that Jay Brown called us and said, "Uh, I want you guys to come down. I want to play you something. He didn't tell us. What? Because we'd already heard the finished song, you know, we loved it, and you know, it's a, it's a this is it, this is the first single, and then when we walked in and he just pressed play, and and we heard Jay do the intro, it was like okay, you know, now now it's it's really getting real, you know, now it, it's on. It would have been so awkward and
2: funny if you guys had heard that and been like, nah. That's not for me. (laughs) I don't like it. Not only because, like, you know, Jay Brown is, like, one of Jay-Z's, like, real lieutenants, right? So there's a little bit of, like, a dynamic there. Like, if he had just hit play, you would have been like, oh, no, that's whack. Like, that that would have been amazing. I will
3: tell you, though, that L.A. Reid, I'm pretty certain this is true, uh, that he told me this, that um, when he heard Jay's first verse, L.A. said, you can top it. Because we got the first verse from Jay-Z was not the one that became the one. And it was good, but we loved it, but L.A. pushed him, and he did another verse, and that became the one that went on the record.
0: No clouds in my stones. Let it rain I hide the plane in the bank, coming down like a cow's jones. When the clouds come, we go
3: so um, we have versions laying around with the original Jay-Z intro rap. But but that was uh, L.A. just saying, you can make it even hotter, you know. And, and that's how it happened.
2: Can I say, like, I, I think there's something really brilliant there. Because, again, everything has to line up for there to be like this this massive hit. Right. Um, and L.A. Reid, who's been, you know, controversial in the business for a number of reasons in the last whatever years, uh, that guy knows how to tell a story. Right. And huh. and And that's that's what that was about right and i think about pop stars a lot the same way i think about like worldwide wrestling wrestlers they all have their narratives and their stories and the ones that are really going to pop and stick around like you got to get the right song at the right moment that kind of fills that story
0: moment and i think that's what that's that's what jay did with that verse a little bit he positioned it that way all right vogue.com editor chomanadi let's bring you in here you followed Rihanna's career and you also did her maternity shoot for Vogue. When you look at the umbrella video and the looks that she had in there, what stood out to you?
4: you? You saw that sort of darker edge come to the fore. Before she had this very cute look with the ripped jeans and the waves and here she is, you know, she's on heels, she's she's in this, this body skimming look and you see her in a much more kind of um, this, this dark, more sexy attitude come f- to the fore. And and I think she's always been a person who embraces risk and, and likes to do what people don't want her to do. So, you know, you, you see that she enjoys transformation, like how she presents herself and uh, taking on different characters and um, flipping the script. And it's kind of interesting to see someone so young do that because I think... She definitely grew into her style. I think she's definitely continues to raise the bar, you know, each time. Um, But it's interesting to see someone so young, so self-possessed and so really understands the power of their image as well as the power of their sound.
2: The other thing it does, which a lot of great pop songs have done over the years, is it walks this line between like, um, where where it's dropping some entendre, let's say, Right, so you know, you get to the end of that song, and it's like it's the the chorus. It's raining. Uh, come into me. There's a whole long history in pop music of men and women dropping lines that are like, "Hmm, wait a minute, <laughs> like, like what what, 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 what are we singing about here?" So I, I'm not sitting here saying like that was, you know, d- do I think it was intentional? Do I think that there was an awareness of an entendre there, like? Probably. I mean, let's not forget the the song starts off with Jay-Z saying good girl gone bad. So like she's I think throughout this album in general and certainly her next album, you really see her start to begin to um, experiment with more with more overtly sexual themes
0: and kind of grow into being a a grown woman. Evan, I'm curious. uh, Do you agree with that?
3: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Rihanna was always had an edge to her from day one. Um I mean on her first album we had a song called There's a Thug in My Life How Am I Gonna Tell My Mama and we were like she can't do that song and she was like no I want that and and she it was like oh, okay you know and and so I think that with everything from the title of the album Good Girl Gone Bad to those lines in that song um you know it was no accident that's who she is you know she is an edgy person she is a risk taker and everything from the changing her hairstyle for that album. You know, that was a lot of pushback from the label. You know, she can't have short hair, you know, the bob with the angular look like that was she knew what she wanted, you know, and that album was definitely like now you're going to see more of who who I am growing into a young woman. Just a few years later, something happens in Rihanna's
0: personal life that becomes international news. Let's play the clips.
3: The singer on top of the charts and on top of the world. And then last February, she was physically assaulted by her equally famous boyfriend, always known as one of the nice guys,
1: Chris Brown. I am strong. This happened to me. I didn't cause this. I didn't do it. This happened to me, and it can happen to anybody. There are a lot of women who've experienced what I did. But not in the public. So it made it really difficult.
0: Now, Choma, this is an incredibly tender period of time for Rihanna and her loved ones. What was going through your head during this moment?
4: Uh, I mean, you know... I think how incredibly brave she was and how she responded to this moment, I think was pretty in, in, incredible because I think she's had to endure all of this with the public eye, you know, what so many women go through. And I think it showed her resilience and her ability to sort of be vulnerable to and to talk very candidly about something that was a particularly difficult moment to navigate. I remember the interview with Oprah um, and you know, you could see the the sort of anguish and the the sort of pain that she'd been through. I think that when the world saw that Mm -hmm. in 2009, that's what
1: stuck with so many people. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. But nobody could feel that more than me. It happened, it happened to me. Mm -hmm. And it happened to me in front of the world. Mm -hmm. It was embarrassing, it was humiliating, it was hurtful. You know, it's not easy. I lost my best friend, like everything I knew switched, switched in a night.
4: But she was brave enough to sort of speak on it. I think she understood that it was important that she did for other women to raise awareness. And um, I think she's had to endure some very difficult moments. And perhaps this was a, a sort of moment for her that she really had to find a way to be at once, kind of protect herself, but also to be vulnerable. And I think it's a really difficult balance for someone who's in the public eye to strike. Um, I don't think many celebrities are able to do that. And it's something that's very special to her and unique to her.
0: Now, Bill, there's also value in understanding what this means for her public image. So in terms of how she was perceived as a celebrity, as an icon, what changed? Wow, so this is obviously a lot to unpack. Uh yeah. and it's
2: it's obviously a very triggering thing for for an incredible number of people. Um and I think first and foremost it's it was an awful awful thing to have happened to Rihanna. Um, I think a couple things to understand from a public image perspective. One is uh you know this happens after the Grammys. So you already have this moment where all attention is on music, or at least in, you know, in terms of pop culture, all attention is on music. And suddenly the story shifts. And now instead of talking about the Grammys, Mm -hmm. this is the story that they're talking about. So that's number one. And I don't mean to be, you know, gross about that. I mean, again, I don't want to bury the human element here. This is a person who experienced a traumatic thing. The other part of this is that, you know, at first it's a news story, it's words, And then um, someone leaks the images. And so then there's this like next round. And so now those are going all over the world. And, you know, another factor to keep in mind here is this is relatively in the early days of mass social media. So things like this, like suddenly for the first time, the narrative can't be controlled by the powers that be because the narrative is being created on social media by people that are consuming this and sharing thoughts. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm sure that, that we would all want this to have happened in a different way, but even as big as umbrella was things like this, when they happen, they do have a way, like people's grandmas were talking about this, right? This was major news. This was no longer like, oh, I'm a fan of the pop charts or I love pop music. Of course, I know who Rihanna is. Suddenly, she's hitting the radars of millions of people around the world,
0: tens of millions of people around the world that may not ever even listen to pop music. Now, Evan, you know, you're her uncle, Evan. You know, she's an extended part of your family. Um, Tell
3: us what you're thinking and feeling when you reflect on this time. Uh, That was a painful chapter um we were all at the hotel out in hollywood you know night before the grammys and so the morning early the morning of the grammys woke up to these calls um just craziness and at first not getting the whole story and and then the realization of what had happened kicked in. And, you know, there had been whispers of there had been some shows canceled, you know, leading up to it and little whispers of what's going on, you know, behind the scenes. We had gotten to know Chris Brown and seemed like, you know, uh, totally like they were happy together and fun and so shocking um, and hurtful. And I'll add um, one other angle, which was particularly infuriating to myself and and my team was the amount of blame being pointed at her as this unfolded. Like, I was, I guess I should never be shocked, you know, with social media and everything. But there was a fair amount of people pointing the finger at her. She, uh, I heard that she did this to him. I heard that, you know, which made it a painful situation, much more painful. Um, And I can only imagine how that made her feel but it was a whole process, you know, that that took a lot of a lot of time to to come back from. Sometimes you think you're over something like that, but it, uh, I'm sure, is that, you know, a life-changing experience to a horribly traumatic thing.
0: Evan, you mentioned that vitriol that, you know, was going around about her at this time from some, but there was also a lot of love and support that was being shown as well. Bill, can you zoom out for me a little bit? And... Talk about America as a whole. What does this incident teach us about how fandoms shifted um, during a tragedy?
2: Well, you know, like I mentioned, this is sort of, um, this is still the relatively early days of mass Twitter. Um, This is also the first year or two, really, of this concept of fan armies emerging. I mean, it's actually really fascinating. I mean, you, you look back now... And this kind of like like ride or die mentality, this like I am able to refute any logic, any fact that doesn't fit my narrative of how I see my favorite artist, which is what's going on here with like Chris Brown had his fan army and they were not willing a lot of these people to just take at face value what. What we were seeing, and 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 so I, I suspect strongly a lot of these attacks, and I still see this today, like Chris Brown fans that are like almost radically defensive about the criticisms that get levied against Chris Brown. But you know, you almost see echoes of this, right? Like that was that pop fans were the first to organize. Pop fans were the first to to kind of create these mass movements of
0: support. I think it's fascinating too, just how fans have in that moment become more protective over artists. You mentioned these Stanhoods, you know, now we see Cardi B's got her Barty gang. You got Nicki Minaj has her, her barbs, the beehive. You see them all over social media. Um, It becomes more than just passively listening to music. Right. But an actual, like, you know, an identity that you kind of embody.
2: Yes. And I will say, of all those fan armies, I, I got to give a shout out here uh, to Rihanna's Navy um, because you know you talk about ride or die, you talk about power, you talk about people that are going to have the support of of their favorite artist, and Rihanna's fans are up there with any. One, Literally anyone in terms of being the most passionate, the most dedicated. And I'll say this, too, as someone who's been active on Twitter since that time, uh, you don't want to cross them (laughs) or, (laughs) or, you know, and, and by cross them, I mean, like, say anything that might be perceived as remotely critical of their favorite artist or you're going to spend a couple days like wishing your timeline was still usable. Uh, because, because, you know, I see, I see Evan laughing. Like, he, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, Bill, yes. have, you,
0: have you been on the wrong side of these armies before? I have, I mean, plenty of times. I don't know about,
2: <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever been on the wrong side of Rihanna's Navy specifically, but, uh, I definitely ran afoul of like Gaga's Little Monsters a few times, uh, and, and barely lived to tell about it.
0: <laughs> I myself have survived the, uh, the barbs of the Nicki Minaj hive. Uh, on Twitter, so I, I completely understand. <laughs> oh. I was good I'm on my that's More making in a minute. That's the way it was, you was
1: good on the love
0: for fate on some
1: fatty love. What the f you complaining for?
0: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: By 2014, Rihanna had become much more than an international pop star.
1: I grew up in a really small island, (laughs) and I didn't have a lot of access to fashion. But um, as far as I could remember, fashion has always been my defense mechanism. Even even as a child I would I remember thinking she could beat me but she cannot beat my outfit.
0: It started as it always does with celebrity fashion stints, with her striking public looks.
1: Rihanna! Oh ew, G my girl Rihanna finally on the red carpet at the Met Gala. We have all been waiting for this moment. Rihanna!
0: She was named Fashion Icon of the Year in 2014, dressed from head to toe in Swarovski crystals. Then, What's the big news with Rihanna? Oh, she just became the new global brand ambassador for Puma. That's all. But being a brand ambassador with the best shoe was not enough for Riri. She had to make waves in the industry. In 2017, she rolled out the Fenty Beauty Collection. First, makeup.
1: Rocking the makeup world, the first line to include over 40 different shades.
0: Then, lingerie.
1: And some fashion critics are even saying her show is a pointed critique of that other colossus of women's underwear, Victoria's Secret. With Victoria's Secret sales
0: down. And finally, in 2019, she solidified her status as a mogul, launching Fenty with LVMH, the largest luxury conglomerate in the world. And she just kept climbing.
3: Rihanna is now the youngest
1: self-made billionaire woman in the U.S. You know, it was real weird getting congratulations uh texts from people for money but it it made sense when i realized that it, it was inspiring to people that they felt like this is something that they could achieve yes. knowing where i've come from knowing my humble beginnings they see uh the possibility and it gives them hope and that and that made me feel um, really happy
0: Shoma, let's rewind real quick to Robin Fenty growing up in Barbados. When she was a kid, did she already kind of plant the seeds of her fashion interest? What did she learn from Barbados that she carried with her into the fashion world?
4: Yeah, um, you know, she, all of her friends kind of went to her for fashion advice and her aunt had a store. um, And she was the girl that everybody wanted to be dressed by. And she had a natural instinct for fashion. And I think... That probably came from spending hanging out at her aunt's tour, but it's probably really innate to her. you know. I spoke to some of her some of her childhood friends recently and and they they sort of said that she was she would all style them, which I thought was pretty sweet
0: yeah, that is pretty sweet. you know fast forwarding a decade later, she's Puma's brand ambassador she's coming out with radically inclusive lines, and she's really caught your eye. What is she doing in fashion? That makes her such a big deal.
4: I think she has the ability. You know, she just can anticipate the moment. She understands what we want before we know we want it because she has so much fun with fashion. I remember meeting her, interviewing her backstage uh, for her first Puma show, and you know she notices what other people wear. I remember she 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 knew I was wearing. I think I was wearing sort of vintage Jean Paul Gautier, and she noticed and. She is a fashion nerd. Like, she she loves it, you know. And you see that come through. In, in in everything that she does, you see that, like, she's obsessive about these things. And I think she came through at a time when we weren't seeing pop stars uh, at that degree being multi-hyphenates. There were a few that had tried their hand at, at fashion, but nobody has succeeded in the same way that she had um, because she really, she really has the right instincts you know i engaged with a conversation with her recently for the cover of vogue and i sort of suggested that maybe her what if her child didn't love fashion and she was just peals of laughter because she just was like that's not possible my child has to love fashion (laughs) you know it's like it's a it's a language for her it's an it's a mode of expression it's her first line of defense it's like her joy like it's part of how she communicates to the world so it was no surprise to me that like she was really leaning into it and made it something bigger.
2: Brandon, can I add one little detail uh, that I think echoes or maybe uh, supports a little bit of something that Chumbo was saying? Um, probably around 2010, we had this uh, business partnership idea that we wanted to pitch, uh, the Billboard wanted to pitch. And I remember reaching out to Rock Nation uh, and Jay Brown. With Jay, it was, well, you know, I kind of like the idea, but we need to get you in front of Rihanna. And I was like, surprised. But Rihanna, I mean, she, you know, I presented this to her. She asked a dozen sharp questions, so hands-on, so involved in her business. I think a lot of fans have this perception that all superstars with like other lines of business just have, you know, smart corporate people making these decisions for them. But this is a hundred percent Rihanna. Nothing happens as far as I've ever seen in her camp. Nothing happens with Rihanna's business without Rihanna being in the weeds, making those choices. And, and it's just so incredibly impressive.
0: Choma, so many celebrities, you know, they, they try to do the fashion thing. But you mentioned the strategy that Rihanna had. Can you speak to how that compares to kind of what other musicians do and why that strategy and intention really matters in the fashion game?
4: I don't know if it's like so much strategy as kind of innate sense of style and instincts. She also really knows her body. So she knows what she needs and... When she doesn't get what she needs, whether it's the lingerie that was missing, the foundation that wasn't available, well, then maybe that that's an opportunity. Right. So I think she grew up seeing her mother do her makeup and knowing that that, 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 that there were certain colors not available to black and brown women. And it was fulfilling a need like, you know, it was the same when she launched Savage. There, there weren't she she got up to make that amazing speech to accept the CFDA award. And I am so pleased to present the 2014 CFDA Fashion Icon Award to my tweeting buddy, Rihanna. And, you know, at the time, there were no panties that were her shade of nude. And so she had to wear these, these this underwear that wasn't quite right. And it was from there that the idea to do the savage came from, because she was like, "Why? why doesn't this exist? Like, why don't women who look like me have the options that they should have? So... It, it's it's obviously she's, she loves it, but she's smart, you know, like she's not, she's not a billionaire for no reason. You know, she's built something from sort of anticipating these things and being totally connected to what's going on in the culture, which I think is very difficult to do. That's where she has managed to sort of outshine so many of these other celebrities who've not, it doesn't come from an authentic place, perhaps, you know, when other people do it.
0: And that impact of Fenty. I mean, you know, I I talk to women all the time, Black women, Latino women, who for for them, it's deeper than just vanity. It's way more than vanity. It's about having yourself seen, Seen. being represented, Mm -hmm. right? And being able to to absolutely just be yourself and have products that reflect who you are at your core. And it seems like that's what Rihanna was able to tap into, that no one else really
4: did. 100%. And it really came from a place of like, a, of need, like that this thing doesn't exist, and B, of like real instinct and um, and style kind of accume, like she has it.
0: Uh, you know, Choma, as we know, Rihanna just gave birth to her baby boy. Yep. Talk, talk to us about her movement in maternity fashion.
4: Yeah, you know, um, I kind of was lucky enough to sit down with Rihanna in in Paris over dinner when she was about, she must've been about seven months pregnant and she was loving it. <laughs> she was loving it. I walked in, she was tucked away in the corner. Uh, nobody was kind of paying any attention. She was just there alone. And she just talked about how this, how much she enjoyed being pregnant because it sort of presented a challenge and she loves nothing more than a challenge. And I think for a lot of women, it was such a sort of, they've sort of breathed a sigh of relief because women are told to hide, you know, women are told to hide and um, it's a moment where you're sort of like always trying to disguise the bump. And here she was kind of fully putting it on full display. Like I was at the Dior show when she walked in in this sort of see-through baby doll dress with, a with um, you know, her own design lingerie, which was like basically dental floss. Like, <laughs> And it was incredible. I think um, she's managed to shake up that world, you know, and maternity wear never had a sexy ring to it. And um, I'm sort of like, you know, sad it's only nine months.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Evan, there's rumblings from the Navy and and, and many others about a reggae album. What do you think is the next best move for Rihanna?
3: Mm. Um, She's in a position right now where she doesn't have to do anything. Mm. And I think as we keep referring to her instincts and her Sort of ability to know the right moment to make the right move. I obviously am curious to see what happens. I'm like everybody else. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm a fan too. I, I can't wait to hear. It. But I, one thing I know, it'll be right when she says it's time. There's certainly no need for her to rush anything. She can do whatever the hell she wants. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you to our amazing panel here for your time and and having this great discussion with us. That's Making Rihanna. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our great guests, Choma Nadi, Bill Wordy, and Evan Rogers. Next week on Making.
4: He said, told you so. I told you I'd be the best damn bastard you've ever seen.
0: The white people do not know it, but the white people's best friend is dead. If this country has the judgment it ought to have, I present to you the next president of the United States, Jesse Johnson. Making Rihanna was produced by Hina Srivastava and Justin Bull. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Special thanks to Tom Brehan and Milena Rising for help on the show. More episodes are on the way. Be sure to press the subscribe button and we'll see you next week.